Good evening, welcome back, and I'm ready with the text. You can see on the screen, Acts chapter 26. I'll read verses 1 through 23 in just a few moments. I've learned a lot that I can use in my life and put into my attitude and my living and preaching from the New Testament accounts of the Apostle Paul. That includes, obviously, what he wrote, his epistles. But to accompany what he wrote and what those epistles tell us about him, we have what Luke reveals about Paul in the book of Acts. See, Paul illustrated in his life after he was converted what he wrote in the epistles. And Luke in the book of Acts provides us with these rich narratives about various episodes that occurred in the life of the Apostle Paul. And here's one in Acts 26. Paul is offering his defense before King Agrippa. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. 
And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, <coughs> for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer, and that by being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. That's Acts 26, 1 through 23. Background. Geographically, in this section of Acts, Paul's movement is from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and from there on to Rome to stand trial. Jewish antagonism took Paul on this journey. Jewish antagonism toward Paul was the driving force of this persecution that was aimed at taking Paul to execution in Rome. One step in the process involved Festus in Caesarea. Festus in Caesarea had before his court Paul's appeal to the Roman government. But Festus was having a hard time framing the charges. He took Paul, therefore, to his superior, King Agrippa. And at this point, there's one primary charge that Paul was teaching against Jewish law. And that's specified by Luke back in Acts 21, 28. Festus brings Paul before Agrippa, not really a formal trial, but a hearing in an effort to get something written before Paul is sent to Rome. Now, that's the background. That's the history. How do we study this? Here's a good place to start. What would you say... And how would you act if you were falsely accused and standing before an unbelieving official? What would I do? What would you do? That's always a good place to start in these narratives in the book of Acts. So what would you say and how would you act? What would be your demeanor or mine if we were falsely accused and standing before an unbelieving official? Well, to say the least, it would be challenging 
to be kind and civil. Or we might be so anxious and fearful it would be hard to organize our words and, and be coherent. I'm impressed, first of all, in Acts 26 by Paul's composure, his discipline, his good clarity and good sequence of thought that he presents. Most of all, his attitude. And I'll tell you where all of that comes from. His trust in God and his relationship with God through Jesus Christ that he accounts for in this hearing. I went through this passage recently and made some notes and I'm going to share those with you tonight. Beginning here, Paul exhibits what might be called common courtesy. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. It'd be so easy to dismiss any words of kindness, avoid any attempt to be polite, and just lash out against this ungodly man and Festus who is next to him and the Jews who might be in the audience. That approach would not have served the interest of the cause of Christ. In fact, it might have shut down this whole occasion before anything else was said. We may do in circumstances where injustice is our focus, the very thing I've described, inventing our anger and perhaps in vengeance. In that loss of control, what may happen is we lose an opportunity. We spoke our wrath, but at the same time we spoke our wrath, we lost an opportunity. We shut down what might have been a good conversation. We got somebody told... But that's it. Nothing else can be said because since we led into this with an insult or we called someone a name, we lost an opportunity to preach. Paul used very good sense, had very good composure and demeanor. Divine wisdom is at work in his mind as he began this speech with well-selected words of courtesy. He didn't want to shut this whole thing down by venting his wrath. It may remind you of Proverbs 25, 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Great discipline was displayed by Paul before Agrippa. I want you to see Paul made God the center of all this. See, if you start out in such an opportunity with venting your own wrath, you've already lost what we're going to talk about now. Paul had opportunity through his initial courtesy to speak about God, and he made God the center of all this. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews 
They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Then he says in verse 8, this is a key. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now, what's at the center of that? In this segment of his speech before Agrippa and Festus and the Jews, God is the center. It would be so easy in this kind of a setting to make it all about me. Listen to me, Agrippa. Let me tell you about me, Agrippa. Let me tell you what I've done. Let me tell you what people have done to me and said about me that's wrong. No, Paul said, here's why I am here. My hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. Remember, God had made promises long before Paul came on the scene. In fact, promises revealed in the Old Testament by the prophets that a Messiah would come. This was the hope of Israel. The Jews, the very ones who accused Paul before Agrippa, the Jews were the recipients of these promises of a Savior who would offer salvation to them and to the world. Paul says, this is why I'm here. It is amazing, many have noted, that the Jews who received the promised hope of a Messiah would persecute Paul for entertaining and confirming that same hope. But Paul said, that's why I'm here. That leads me to this. God's story is so much more important than our story. There is some value in Christians telling their conversion story to their children and grandchildren. I think that can be a good starting point for leaving a good spiritual legacy. But what we tell people about our lives as Christians must always be presented as centered on God and what God has done by His grace through the death of Christ that gave us opportunity to be converted. It is all about God. And Paul gave his speech before Agrippa that kind of divine emphasis. And he knows that others are there listening. It's all about God. Now, what do you do about your past? Paul owned his flawed past in some detail. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now, it'd be easy to leave this out. Might be easy to say to yourself, (coughs) 
I've been forgiven of those things I've done wrong. No need to bring up my past sins. But this is a situation that requires full honesty and disclosure because it was commonly known. And he is describing the sin that he's going to tell us he gave up when he was converted to Jesus Christ. He was saying, in effect, here's what I used to be, but now here's what Christ made of me when I responded to him. If people know your past, why not admit your flawed past and then lead them into the knowledge of how they can be forgiven and changed as you were forgiven and changed? That's something we ought to get from this. Again, you make this not about you, but about Him, about the promises God made of a Savior and how the Savior changed Paul. That has great value. And then, of course, he reports his conversion from verse 12 down through verse 20. And here's the essence of it. Here's the essence of what Paul says. Jesus appeared to me, Jesus spoke to me, and I obeyed him. He says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus <clears throat> then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds in keeping with repentance. Jesus appeared to me, Paul said to Agrippa. Jesus spoke these words to me. Paul quoted Jesus and then Paul said, I obeyed. Paul could have made this a very lengthy, wordy discourse. But instead, he gave these facts. Jesus, whom I had been persecuting, appeared to me and spoke to me. I obeyed him. Now, we are not in the sandals of Paul, who was not only converted after an appearance of Jesus, but after his commission as an apostle. But we ought to be able to say this. I've read the New Testament. I believe these are inspired documents from God. Jesus is presented to me in His deity and His resurrection. I obeyed Him. 
Now, verse 19 is a key statement in Paul's statement and defense before Agrippa. I was not disobedient. It was not Paul's intention to overthrow rulers or threaten the Roman Empire or create community chaos among the Jews. He was doing what the Lord called him to do. In his life, in his message, he was not disobedient. If any of us are ever called before a court because of our faithfulness to God, I hope we will remember these very simple words and use them. I was not disobedient. You notice, Paul is composed and clear. He isn't insulting. He wants to reach this man he's speaking to. And he knows that others are listening. He's not going to give up an opportunity. It is not just self-vindication. It is not just venting his wrath. It is an affirmation of the truth of Christ and his devotion is expressed. I was not disobedient. By the way, this shows that grace is not irresistible, as some teach. There was and is an act of will to receive what grace offers. Paul engaged in that act of will in obeying the gospel. Now, at this point, some of the people who were listening are probably impressed by the strength of this man with such composure, facing such threat against the Jews. And some may have wondered, where did he get this strength? So, he affirms his source of help. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here, testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. How did this man survive all the opposition, the mistreatment, the unjust criticism, the attempts against his life, against his life, the stoning? He had help. And here he identifies the source of his help, the help that comes from God. Here's a man who testified to small and great, no matter the opposition. He was only saying what the prophets had spoken and written, and through the storms he encountered, his help was from God. Now, <clears throat> I will likely never go through what Paul went through, nor any of us. But the source of our help is the same. Whatever storms we encounter... Whatever internal battles we have to fight, whatever or whoever may come against us, our help comes from God. God can use people to help us. He can use situations to discipline and refine us. We pray to Him and ask for His answers, believing in His ultimate wisdom. He is the source of our help. We trust Him and pray and grow, and we keep doing what's right. We need to be open to God's help and be willing to tell others where they can find help. And then, Paul connected all this to the resurrection of Christ, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. For Paul, 
and all the apostles, the message of the gospel was always firmly connected to the fact of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Although crucified, Jesus was, at the moment Paul was speaking, living and seated at the right hand of God. Now, on a very simple level, here's what that means for us that is so valuable. We serve a living master. He lives. The book of Hebrews says, He lives now in heaven and there, there is the presence of His intercession before God for His people. We need to take the deepest comfort in that. And when we talk to people about the gospel, there needs to be emphasis on the historical facts of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Even if the world rejects all of that, our help comes from God as we gain our composure and our discipline and center what we say on God and proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul, in his defense before Agrippa, holds nothing back. It was precisely his faith in the resurrection of Jesus that many were opposing him about. He affirms it. Now, what happens next? We're always looking for results. Join with me now, 24 to 32. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. I want us to see this. The fact that you tell the truth, you tell it well, without animosity or hatred, with good discipline and composure, does not guarantee the results. Let me say that again. The fact that you tell the truth centered in God and you tell it well without animosity or hatred and with good discipline and composure does not guarantee the results. I'm going to make this statement for your consideration. 
Paul was not responsible for the results. He was responsible for how he handled himself in the delivery of the truth. And he handled himself well. He delivered the truth of the gospel. That ended Paul's responsibility for this occasion. So now, responsibility goes to the people. The people have responsibility to decide what they will do about Jesus Christ. Raised from the dead. Fulfilling what the prophets said. Luke tells us about this man Festus who had delivered Paul to Agrippa. Festus responded to the invitation, so to speak, negatively. Saying Paul was mad. He's out of his mind. Now, again, Paul has opportunity here from a carnal standpoint to lash out at Festus. Maybe to take a swing or two. Paul didn't respond with an insult for insult. That would have been easy. No, Paul said, No, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I am speaking true and rational words. Then... Paul speaks to King Agrippa. You know these things. These things I'm talking about have not escaped your notice. And then comes the challenge. Every sermon needs a challenge. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Paul still doesn't have any guarantee of results. But the ball is now in Agrippa's court. And Festus and Bernice and the others. And Paul makes it focused on Agrippa here. What will you do? And Agrippa responds, but not with obedience, rather with this. You almost persuade me to be a Christian. And now here's where the heart of Paul emerges so clearly at verse 29. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. He wanted everybody to become Christians. Stop and think. Use your imagination for a moment. How different it would have been if King Agrippa had stood up and stepped down to join Paul and said to Paul, I want to be baptized for the remission of my sins. How different this would have turned out for so many people, but for one word that's in the older translations, almost. Almost. Paul has handled his responsibility in a godly way. And now the people who've listened about Jesus Christ raised from the dead according to what the prophets said, those people have responsibility. Christians, since the first century, have been served well by these vivid, dramatic narratives in the book of Acts. Particularly, men like Paul, Stephen, Peter and John, Barnabas. Their nerve, it might be said, their savvy, their devotion, their boldness show what remarkable things can occur when people believe in Christ down to the core of their soul and they're willing to be used 
to help others learn of Him. Here's the challenge for us. If we are not at this level of strength and maturity, can we be? We can. We can be obedient through whatever struggles may intrude. We can have this kind of trust and discipline and boldness in our struggles because we have what Paul had, the help that comes from God. So let's open our eyes, examine ourselves to the strength and maturity that we're able to have through the activity of faith in Christ. Let's be standing as we sing.